welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. Okay, Zoe, I just have to tell you something really quick. Oh my gosh. So, I finally got to see Hamilton last week. Ah! Congratulations! It's a big life achievement. <laughs> it really is a big life achievement. I bought these tickets in December. It is now August. And so I've been sitting on these for a very long time and it finally happened and it was everything I wanted and I may have bawled during like the entire second act, but that's okay. (laughs) I was so prepared to ball because I also got to see it last year or this year and I was so excited and I was like so afraid that I was going to cry so much because like I I cry in every musical I see, but I love Hamilton the most of all of anything in my life right now (laughs) that I was so afraid I was going to cry. I had so many tissues with me, but I was like, don't cry, don't cry. You can't miss an absolute moment of this with tears in your eyes. I literally, so like I I did prepare. I did put waterproof mascara on just in case. So I was prepared and I like held it together because there were just a lot of moving scenes in the first act where there's just like everything just was like culminating and it was just so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I would feel my eyes start to water just from like the sheer energy of it. And I'm just like, keep it together, lady. And I did. And then, (laughs) and then Philip died and it just like went straight to hell. Yeah, it's, oh my gosh, when I'm listening to it in my car, just day to day, because it's pretty much the only thing I listen to still three years after starting to listen to it, mm-hmm. there are a few tracks that will just get me like absolutely sobbing and they aren't even necessarily the ones that you expect, but sometimes in One Last Time, when George Washington and Hamilton start reciting that speech of oh my George God, Washington's, yes. I am just oh, that's- absolutely crying. Well, and that's the thing is when I first listened to the soundtrack, I was crying like just listening to it and I hadn't seen the show. I really had no back history. Just listened to the whole thing through and I was already crying. So when I went to go see the show, I was like, oh, it's going to get bad. Just be prepared. John looked at me at one point because he hadn't seen me crying because I was silently crying this whole time. (laughs) And he finally looks at me and he's just like, the look on his face was like, seriously? (laughs) Because no... I mean, like, just, like, streaming tears. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was me in the front row of Les Mis one time, but that's another story. Anyhow, <laughs> but I wanted to say to those of you who are listening and have never listened to Hamilton, I know we're gushing about it, but it is an expensive show to see, and it's hard to get tickets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I really want to say is that the soundtrack is song to song to song. There is no... Yeah, there's no dialogue. It's all song. Exactly. So listening to the soundtrack, you get the experience and it is absolutely magical. And I think it's really important to listen to the soundtrack before you see it Mm -hmm. because there are so many words. There are so many words in between and so many cool, amazing things that you just wouldn't get if you just go see it. It's so overwhelming when you do see it. So every time I listen to it, I get more out of it. So Absolutely. And there's podcasts and and reading materials and all sorts of cool things about it that you can learn about the different themes throughout it. The word that Lin-Manuel Miranda chose uh, to say throughout the whole thing, it's like a theme, you know, right? It runs through the world helpless. Mm -hmm. His mother was helpless. His wife was helpless. Another woman in his future becomes helpless. And that theme repeats and he is helpless against helpless women. Anyhow, it's really great it's all super great and then what's really hilarious though is so john is now watching this like docu-series on like the american revolution 
Yeah. So to preface this for everyone in this podcast, my uh, husband, we're just going to call him that, um, <laughs> is almost, <laughs> almost is from South Africa. So he doesn't really have the same background of the American Revolution as we got in school because he did not grow up in America. So now he's like, I'm really interested in American history. So like the last few days, he's just been... <laughs> watching this docuseries on the revolution and I'm like these are fun facts just because I'm a history nerd <laughs> that's fantastic I'm so glad you had such a good time and I wish we could talk about this for another hour but this is not a Hamilton fan cast <laughs> it is not it is however a Regency romance fan cast so that's what we're doing today <laughs> And before we jump into the book this week, we've got a question. So, Kelsey, what is your favorite movie based off of a classic book? Like one that sticks to the original time period. So for me, I have two. One of which is the 1960s version of Romeo and Juliet. That movie blew me away when I first saw it. I love that movie. Like the costumes are great and it's all sticking to the original Shakespeare script and it's in the original time period and just all the filming of it, like it was praised in its time. And honestly, I still have it. I have it on DVD. Like, I love that movie. It's fantastic. That is one of my mother's favorite movies. She made me watch it like a little too young where it was like I was a little bit bored. But the music absolutely stuck with me. The score is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it is. I agree. It's a beautiful movie to look at. So what's your second? The second one is there, I believe it's, is it Sense and Sensibility or is it another Shakespeare one? Sense and Sensibility is also great. It's an Austin one. That's my favorite. <laughs> Perfect. Then you can say more about it. <laughs> yeah. So Sense and Sensibility is definitely my favorite. It is absolutely breathtaking to look at and to listen to. And it's just, it feels like you're sighing the whole time. I love it. I hate, you know, the, the characters you're supposed to hate, you hate. The characters you're supposed to love, you love. Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman as the kind of tragic hero is just incredible. There are so many wonderful actors and the script was written by Emma Thompson who also stars in it and it's just pretty incredible because she was I guess a really big fan of the book and she as a as a fan adapted it into a script and it's just it's beautiful. It's perfect. And I remember I, I saw the movie before I started reading the book. We already know I've never finished the book. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but I, I watched the movie before reading the book. And I remember when I got to the passage in the book where they describe the house where the, the mother and the sisters go to live, it was like the the movie had had literally said all those words without saying a single word for when you see the house. So I just, it was, it's a really beautiful movie. And if you haven't seen it, do. Go see it. Great. Now I need to go rewatch that. <laughs> it's so good. I can watch it any day of the week and I'm not a movie person. <laughs> okay. This is a lot of gushing we've already had to talk about. So now we get to gush a little bit more because the book we're reading today is the first book of the Bridgerton series. Woo! Yeah, we were super excited to get started with this. And then our excitement was tampered a little bit. But we'll get into that. <laughs> we will get into that. So the first book of Julia Quinn's The Bridgerton series is The Duke and I, which is between the Duke of Hastings, Simon Bassett, and Daphne Bridgerton, the fourth child of all the Bridgertons. Yeah. So we already know, because we've gushed about it before, that Shonda Rhimes and Netflix are bringing this to life. And we're really excited about so many different aspects of that. And especially after reading this book, I am interested to see the storylines they choose to go with, 
how many of the children they decide to highlight in their romances. Is it going to only be about one? Is it, you know, one main romance? Is it going to be about multiple romances? It's just going to be really interesting to see it develop. I think I'm really interested too because I'm like, what if they do like one season is like one kid? So then that's already giving you eight seasons because there's eight yeah, kids. There are eight kids in the Bridgerton family. Maybe this is a little important to to say. The Bridgertons have, like we said, eight children. They're named A through G names based H. on their order. Oh, H, sorry. My bad. <laughs> Hyacinth is the last one. Yeah, so that's that's an important fact about the Bridgertons. Yes. And to keep on with our facts, so we have some author facts, since this is a new author for us, Julia Quinn. These are fun facts. You can find them on her website. Um, in 2001, she was a contestant on the game show, The Weakest Link, and won $79,000. Good job, her. Yeah, hell yeah. Go, girl. I want to win $79,000. I could really use it. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that was only one year after this book was published because this book is 19 years old. That is true. I was looking at the dates of these books and I was like, oh, the last book was written when I was quite young. (laughs) (laughs) In 2013, Julia Quinn appeared in a bona fide MTV music video. Oh my gosh. Were you able to figure out which one or was it just ambiguous nope it's just ambiguous to be fair (laughs) I didn't really deep dive that much so but still she was in a music video at some point very cool and do you have any history facts for us this week Kelsey I do and it's a very poignant one because I was inspired on it based on events that take place in the book (laughs) cool so at one point in the book they go to the royal observatory at Greenwich and so here is my facts from the lovely wikipedia page on the prime meridian in 1721 great britain established its own meridian passing through an early transit circle at the newly established royal observatory at greenwich the meridian was moved around 10 meters or so east on three occasions as transit circles with newer and better instruments were built on each occasion next door to the existing one cool so it moved around a little bit and The final meridian was established as an imaginary line from the North Pole to the South Pole, passing through the airy transit circle. This became Great Britain's meridian in 1851, which was then adopted by the rest of the world. Very, very cool. So the timeline on this is a little bit later because in the book, Simon tells how it's been adopted, the the meridian's been adopted around the world. So now everything's out of Britain. But this book takes the place a little bit before 1851. (laughs) Yeah, I think he said that he was going to go to America, but America had just entered into a conflict with Great Britain, which made me think we're talking War of 1812, Napoleonic Wars, Regency period, right smack in there is I think when this book is happening. Yes, that's what I gathered anyway. But now we have some new facts about the Prime Meridian. (laughs) Very cool. So... We're going to get into the book, but I do have to actually give our first trigger warning this week, sadly, and that warning is about consent. So if you are sensitive to the subject of consent, then be advised that we are going to get into that. There's definitely some dicey stuff in this book. We are going to discuss it in depth, and it's also an open conversation, and we're going to talk more about that in the parlor, but it is just something we want everybody to know about going into this episode. I did look around, and you know, this has been a hot topic on the social medias, because, especially because of the Bridgertons 
becoming a Netflix series, a lot of people have been rereading the book and going like, whoa, a lot of people seem to have forgotten about the events that do take place in this book. And as far as I or anybody else on social media can find, it does not appear that Julia Quinn has ever commented on this book and the situations and the consent issues that this book has. So if anybody does know that she has, please let us know. I'd love to know her opinions. However, not to help it out, but alternate titles for this book were Daphne's Bad Air Day, H-E-I-R, and How to Bear and Air, which I don't even quite get that reference, but... Um, I feel like Daphne's bad air day is even, it just looks even worse right now, but. That looks really terrible. Yeah. All terrible. It really does. Yeah. I have my own (laughs) suggestion for a title for this book, but we'll get into that when we uh, get to the, get to our opinions. Alrighty. So this book also has a lot of tropes in it. And I think it's got one main trope, which is my best friend's sister or my brother's best friend, right? Yes, and it has some other tropes in it as well. Um, there's a secret pain of a secret past, mm-hmm. and there's a fake relationship. It's a bit of a marriage of convenience. You know, they're fighting ruination here. And also, too, there's the virgin aspect of it, which ends up playing a huge part. <laughs> a huge part. Yeah, I would say like a really naive virgin, too. And I think that's important to note. So again, our main characters are Simon Arthur Henry Fitzranolf Bassett, Duke of Hastings, and Miss Daphne Bridgerton. Yes, and the first line of the books tells you that he has way too many names. <laughs> yeah, it's very cute. I will, I will say, I love a good intro. And oh my gosh, this book has a really delightful introduction. It is so heartwarming and you, your heart just feels for Simon. So when you start reading this book, it is a very high point. It is. And I will say the prologue, like, it was so engaging and it was just so necessary to really understand the rest of the book and to understand his character as a whole. Agreed. And first, before I get into the prologue, which I know I just spoke about, but now I'm going to tell you about, I would like to introduce (laughs) you to the Bridgerton family, simply because there is a lot of Bridgertons and we're going to meet many of them. And this book is the first book in the series, so you get a lot of setup. Yes. And I am going to give you the Bridgerton's description by none other than Lady Whistledown. And Lady Whistledown is a reoccurring character in the first few books of the Bridgerton series. She is a gossip columnist who appeared one day... These newspapers just started appearing on people's doorsteps for two weeks, and then on the third week, the delivery boys started collecting money for them, and everybody was so addicted that they had to start paying, and I love her entrepreneurial spirit. Get them hooked. Get them in there. You go, Lady Whistle. I know. Seriously, I, I wrote my, I made a comment, and it was like, good business. Good business sense, this lady. Like, good job. <laughs> she knows how to market, and again... Side note, Julie Andrews is the one who is voicing Lady Whistledown in the Netflix series. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yeah, it is. So let's get into the Bridgertons. The Bridgertons are by far the most prolific family in the upper echelons of society. Such industriousness on the part of the Viscountess and the late Viscount is commendable, although one can find only banality in their choice of names for their children. Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, Eloise, Francesca, Gregory, and Hyacinth. 
Orderliness is, of course, beneficial in all things, but one would think that intelligent parents would be able to keep their children straight without needing to alphabetize their names. It has been said that Lady Bridgerton's dearest goal is to see all of her offspring happily married, but truly, one can only wonder if this is an impossible feat. Eight children? Eight happy marriages? It boggles the mind. Lady Whistledown Society Papers. (laughs) And that's a pretty... uh... I would say, nice review of Lady Whistledown because Lady Whistledown is known for telling it like it is. And they say the reason why she's so scandalous is because she doesn't hide anyone's name. She blatantly calls out who she's mentioning. Yeah, it's not like Lady B and Lord P. It's it's Violet Bridgerton or, you know, Simon Bassett. So anyhow, let's get into Simon's sad childhood. Sad, sad childhood. Simon Bassett was an only child. His mother died in childbirth, fulfilling her duty of producing an heir to the dukedom. His dad was actually very merciless in his quest for an heir. And even though the doctors had told his mother not to try to have children anymore because she kept having miscarriages, um, the children that did make it full term were still born, you know, or only lived a few weeks. She had a really hard time of it. The doctors were like, don't get pregnant again. And she did anyway and she finally produced a son that lived and she died very shortly after he took his first breaths um his dad was very excited and doted on him until he started realizing simon wasn't speaking yet his nurse was like but he reads he's not even three yet and he's reading how is this possible but his dad was just like he's an idiot he's not talking And then Simon did speak, and unfortunately, Simon had a stutter. Which was a really, really bad stutter. It wasn't even like a little one. It was uh, pretty incapacitating. Yes. With that stutter, his dad basically disowned him. He was like, my son's an idiot. He's an imbecile. I would rather not have a son than have a son who stutters. And basically wrote off Simon completely. And his nurse very diligently worked with Simon. Simon was really working hard, you know, and he tried to confront his dad at one point and say, I'm your son, you need to acknowledge me. And right before he sees his dad, he finds out that his dad's been telling everyone that he was dead. Yeah, pretty, pretty brutal. And he was 11 at the time. Yeah, he did everything in life to try to better himself and please his dad. And his dad is just an absolute royal asshole yeah no his dad's just a horrible human being and he gets so upset which brings the stutter out even more so unfortunately he still stutters in front of his dad and his dad's like laughs at him and she's like you're still an idiot but simon really takes that and really pushes himself to do better he gets himself into eaton by like marching his way to the headmaster and be like the check must have been lost in the mail because i'm the future duke of hastings and i deserve to be here And he really sets out to remake himself and does a very good job of it. But this kind of sets the tone because he's so angry at his father. And then he decides if he can't be the perfect son for his father by trying to do everything perfectly, then he's just going to try to do everything to make his dad mad. Yeah. And that is how he sets about living his life. So now we're back in our present day book. And Daphne is with her mother reading the Lady Whistledown gossip sheet. And every new chapter in this book starts with a delicious bit of Whistledown gossip, which is really fun. Yes. So she's reading the Whistledown sheet, and the Whistledown papers are saying that the Duke of Hastings has returned from abroad. Simon has spent the last six years traveling the world. He is only now setting foot in England because his dad has died. (laughs) 
Yes, it was interesting that that was the timing of him coming back to England is after his father has died. And of course, Wilson Dunn has also written that lovely paragraph we read earlier about the Bridgertons, which Daphne says is a veritable benediction compared to what she wrote about the Featheringtons last week. Yeah, Lady Whistledown is pretty hard on the Featherington family. To be fair, majority of them deserve it. Yeah. Except for everyone feels for Penelope. Yeah. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> we sure will. So Daphne's mother is pushing for Daphne to get married. She's had a couple of proposals in the past, but she's turned them down because they were just unsuitable. One was just like old and luckily, her family's nice to her and is like, you don't have to marry the first guy that offers. And after Daphne reads the passage about the Duke coming back from Whistledown, her mother says he is quite unsuitable due to his rakish past and advanced age, which Daphne is like, he's Anthony's age. That's eight years older than me. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he's literally the same age as your son, who is also unmarried. <laughs> yeah. And he's his friend. What? Why is that a problem? Anyhow. Anywho. So Daphne believes that her lack of suitable proposals is just because she's not quite pretty and she's just she's just likable, but no one likes her likes her. Yeah, she feels like she is just kind of one of the guys, friends with everybody, but nobody really sees her as a lady because she's so amiable and can have such good conversations and can kind of fit in with everybody. And so... She feels like she isn't what the guys want. Yes. And now we are at Lady Danbury's ball. And Lady Danbury is a dragon of the ton, but she's also hilarious. Love Lady Danbury. Cannot wait to see her on screen. Cannot, cannot, cannot. I can't either. She's going to be hilarious. We also meet Daphne's three older brothers, Anthony, Benedict, and Colin. I can't really go into it because it could literally just be this whole synopsis, but the rapport between the siblings that Julia Quinn writes is fantastic. It's so spot on because it's so genuinely sibling banter. It's like making fun of, but still very protective and like caring about the well-being, but just like the jokes and the, it's it's great. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad you commented on that because I completely agree. Her dialogue is fantastic. And so as I was like writing the synopsis here for our review, I was also like how I literally there were pages and pages of them talking back and forth and I was like okay what do I put here you know as part of my as part of my notes but it's like it's exactly that I wrote almost exactly the same thing which is just like the siblings are great together you know yeah they they are wonderful and they feel like siblings they feel like siblings and the dialogue never feels superfluous between them it feels totally necessary and fun yes and so there is one slight problem at this ball, and it's that Nigel Beerbrook is there, and Nigel has just been turned down by Anthony for Daphne's hand in marriage. Nigel Beerbrook is a bit of um, an idiot, as they kindly say. Yeah. Another side note is that the person that they cast for Nigel Beerbrook is giving me total, like, mature Neville Longbottom vibes. And oh, I'm, man. <laughs> and I'm, I'm super here for it. <laughs> Anyhow. 
Anyhow, so Nigel's there and he's been trying to catch Daphne's eye and she's trying to avoid him. She's like stealthily trying to avoid him as best she can at this ball, but he is very persistently finding her. And then we cut to Simon, who is trying to sneak into Lady Danbury's ball because he really likes Lady Danbury. She was nice to him when he was a kid and he spent a lot of time at her house. And so he's there to say hi to her and he's literally like, I'm going to go in, say hi, and then I'm going to leave and it's going to be great. (laughs) And as he's sneaking through the back corridor, he hears a conversation and it is because Nigel has finally cornered Daphne in the hallway and is trying to get her to change her mind. (laughs) Yeah, and... Like I said, no. going into this book, knowing that there was a consent issue, I was really reading this book with consent on my mind. So I highlighted quite a few quotes and passages about consent where it did get brought up. And I didn't include them all. If anybody's interested, I can direct you to all of them later. I might put them up on our blog. But this is the first one. So I'm going to read it. But as Simon started backing quietly up, he heard something that caught his attention. No. No? Had some young lady been forced into the deserted hallway against her will? Simon had no great desire to be anyone's hero, but even he could not let such an insult pass. So he's hearing this confrontation between Daphne and Nigel, and he's all ready to go in and save the day. And in fact, he's about to say something when Daphne, who has a lot of older brothers, just punches Nigel in the face. (laughs) And he goes down like a rock. (laughs) Yes. And Simon literally laughs out loud. He can't help it. Yeah. I really love this because, of course, at first they don't know who each other is. And she says, who are you? And he says, my intention was to be your rescuer, but clearly you had no need of my services. (laughs) Yes. I love that as an introduction line of of the two characters. They are kind of trading back and forth and they're talking and Simon's like, this girl's pretty. Like, she's funny. Like, I like this girl. Because she's also like, he's trying to be his charming, rakish self. And she's like, you really, you really shouldn't do that. You just, you just look silly. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, I, I think my favorite quote is this scene, which we're going to get to at the end. So yes. we'll, we'll, we will revisit. <laughs> yes. So Nigel wakes up and he tries to go for Daphne again. And then he actually calls her Miss Bridgerton. So then Simon suddenly clicks and he's like, oh, man, it's Anthony's sister. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> Thou shalt not covet thy best friend's sister, I think is what, yes, what he thinks. That's ex- exactly. Anyway, he's going after Daphne and she's like, no, dude, no. And so... I'm just going to read the quote because it just is going to be better that way. Nigel chooses that moment to regain his energy, although clearly not his equilibrium, and yanked himself free of Simon's grip. He threw himself onto Daphne, making incoherent, drunken noises all the way. If Daphne hadn't had her back to the wall, she would have been knocked to the ground. As it was, she hit the wall with a bone-jarring thud, knocking all the breath from her body. Oh, for the love of Christ, the Duke swore, sounding supremely disgusted. He hauled Nigel off Daphne, then turned to her and asked, can I hit him? Oh, please, do go ahead, she replied, still gasping for breath. She tried to be kind and generous towards the erstwhile suitor, but really, enough was enough. <laughs> yeah, and so they decide to leave Nigel there. They were trying to, like, load him up into a carriage at first, but again, enough is enough. And so they part ways and both go back to the ballroom. Yes. And when they're in the ballroom, Simon meets up with Anthony, and Anthony starts to warn him about mothers of single daughters and how now that he's at this ball, he's going to get it because now all the ladies are going to be all over him because he's a bachelor. And this is Anthony's like sole misery in life is 
being put upon to get married by all these mothers. Yeah. And then Simon also learns that, like, it's not always fun for the daughter. He is looking around the ballroom and sees that Daphne looks truly miserable in her circumstances next to the mother at this time, being introduced to all these people. He also notices the Featherington's mother, like, dragging her children around the ball, some of which are complicit in it. And then there's Penelope, who's in the back. And Simon thinks to himself, he's like, If I have to dance with someone, I'll dance with that person because she looks like she's having a terrible time. (laughs) Yeah, it's very sweet. So then he's still talking with the Bridgerton brothers and he lets slip that he knows Daphne. He just lets slip something that Daphne said. He's like, oh, well, Daphne said. And they're like, how do you know Daphne? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All of a sudden, the brothers who were very jolly and good natured towards him, all of a sudden, all three of them were looking at him like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, mm-mm. Don't do that. Excuse me? Yeah. No. How do you, uh, what? And then he was like, oh, I ran into her in the hallway and like I noticed she looked like you guys, so I introduced myself. <laughs> yeah. Covers it real sly. And he realizes that must be Daphne's problem is that she just has three idiot older brothers. <laughs> yes. Not that other guys don't like her, but that they're afraid of her pack of brothers. Yes. And more ball things happen, and eventually Simon and Daphne end up waltzing. Yeah, he's standing with Daphne and her mom and her brothers, and all of a sudden the Featheringtons are coming over looking very determined, and he literally just grabs Daphne. And again, this is another consent quote, and I know it's like just a dance, but I I do think it kind of puts a different lens on things because the passage goes... And finally, she kind of sort of just a teeny bit actually wanted to dance with the Duke. Of course, the arrogant board didn't even give her the chance to accept. Before Daphne could manage an I'd be delighted or even a mere yes, he had her halfway across the room. Thank God you didn't refuse, the Duke said with great feeling. When would I have had the opportunity? He grinned at her. Daphne answered that with a scowl. I wasn't giving the opportunity to accept either, if you recall. He raised an eyebrow. Does that mean I must ask you again? No, of course not, Daphne replied, rolling her eyes. That would be rather childish of me, don't you think? And besides, it would cause a terrible scene, which I don't think either of us desires. So, you know, she kind of calls him out on it, and it turns into a little witty moment between them. And while they're dancing, Simon realizes that he and Daphne might be able to help each other out. Because she is unmarried and wants to be married. And he's noticing that now that he's dancing with her, other gentlemen are like interested in her. And he would like to avoid being matched with every eligible lady in the ballroom. And he thinks that being tied to her and being seen as courting her will calm those mothers. Daphne's like, that's not going to (laughs) work. Yeah, Daphne sees some flaws in his plan for sure. She thinks that she has a lot more to gain by this than he does. But he reiterates to her that he will never marry. He said that he made vows when he was younger and tries to live by them. But now all of his friends here are married and their wives have invited him to things. And he just wants to be able to navigate that without so much matchmaking. And also he's kind of attracted to Daphne, so he'd rather spend more time in her presence but that's not what he admits to her yes so they agree on this plan so the next day he shows up at the bridgerton's drawing room with a bouquet of flowers and finds there's a bunch of men there hanging out with daphne the most that have ever come yes and he's a little annoyed that there's a lot of guys there he's like um excuse me Especially since she doesn't immediately like jump to say hi to him. She's like, you know, talking to the gentlemen who were there. And he's like, what the hell? I'm right here. 
Yeah. <laughs> so he was adorable and brought flowers for Violet Bridgerton, Daphne's mother. Yeah. Which was like so sweet. It's like the most heart-wrenching quote and moment. And we don't know why Daphne's father died in this book. So I'm going to spoil it. You learn it in the next book. But their father died of a bee sting, his second bee sting ever, which is typical for bee stings. And so he went into anaphylactic shock and died pretty suddenly. So we learn about that in book two. Yes. And so the quote from Daphne is, no one ever gave her flowers, she realized, at least not since her father had died 10 years earlier. Violet was such a mother. Daphne had forgotten that she was a woman as well. Yeah, it's so sweet. Which was just like so sweet. And they talk a little bit more about their plan. Daphne insists that they bring Anthony into their plan. Anthony does not like the idea of them even pretending to court. And he's very open about his like, absolutely not. And they kind of convince him that it's a good idea, but he does like swear to Simon that if he compromises Daphne, it'll be pistols at dawn and he doesn't even care that they've been best friends for years. Yeah, Anthony is a bit of a hothead. Yes. Um, also a bit of an overprotective brother. Yeah, not 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 that into it. No. So there is a family dinner happening and Anthony had originally invited Simon to this dinner before this whole fake courtship with Daphne was happening. And he's like, no, you're not invited to dinner anymore. And then Daphne and Violet are like, oh, no, no, come to dinner. Like, that's great. Come to dinner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is more just a lovely affair where Simon gets to see Daphne with her siblings and we get to see the whole Bridgerton clan and how they function together as a family. And Simon, who's never had a family of his own because he was an only child and his dad never paid any attention to him, is really amazed by this whole family aspect. And he's also, for someone who was an only child, is really good with the kids. Hyacinth and Gregory are both like 10, 11 years old. They're really young. And yet he really interacts well with them. And Daphne's really taken by how well he is with her younger siblings and how kind he is. So it's just a really great moment. There's peas flying across the table. And there's Violet being like, I saw that. I know it didn't look like it, but I did. <laughs> so it's really quite cute. Um, we meet Hyacinth, who is a hoot and a half. Yeah. So all great. I would say in the preceding six books up to hers, Hyacinth is so incredible, probably more incredible than in her own book. <laughs> yes. But one day we'll get there and yes. I'll see if that's how I feel today. <laughs> exactly. It's been a while. So then from dinner, Simon's invited to a family outing the next day to the Royal Observatory. To which he says he would love to go because he's an educated fellow. They talk about how he got a first in, what, abstract math or something. Yeah, just mathematics. But later Daphne learns that his type of math doesn't even have numbers in it. <laughs> it's very cute. Yes. But um, yeah, so they're going to the Prime Meridian. There you go. And they have a lovely picnic. And I was going to give you a lot of picnic facts about this because I listened to a podcast by Savor. So Savor is a podcast by How Stuff Works, and they are all about food and the history of food. And they did a history Ooh. of picnics. And it was actually cool. very interesting because all these books have all these picnics. And then I got to learn about the history of picnics. Awesome. I'm going to check that out myself. Yeah, you should. It's good podcast. They've got good banter. Hopefully we have equally good banter. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. So they have a really lovely day and everything's going great until Gregory rammed into Anthony with a thud on his part and a grunt on Anthony's. And before anyone knew it, Anthony was sputtering in the water right next to Simon, 
Daphne clapped a hand to her mouth, her eyes wide as saucers. Violet yanked on her arm. I highly suggest you don't laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Gregory does not end up in the Thames, but Anthony and Simon do, both of them trying to save Gregory from falling in the Thames, but... Uh, whoops. It doesn't quite work out that way. <laughs> we got a Duncan. And Anthony's still a little annoyed by the whole like Simon with Daphne thing, even if it is fake. So he was trying to be macho man and it backfired on both of them. Yep. After this, they court for a couple of weeks, but really they're only meeting at balls. Simon was just coming there in the evenings, but not coming to their house. And something that's been happening is as they hang out together more, even at these balls, Daphne really gives Simon a feeling of ease and peace that he's never felt with another person before. He really is taken with her because of how much at ease she puts him and he's someone who is constantly working on making sure he's not stuttering making sure he's saying only what needs to be said so he doesn't stumble over his words and he never seems to have that problem with her he's always free with his tongue he always is very open with her and she has the same thing she's at this ball out of town and she's sad because Simon's not supposed to come and she realizes she doesn't really have any fun without him there. Every ball she goes to, she looks for him and she's trying to hang out with him and realizes they've really kind of come friends in their own right. They enjoy each other's company, not just because they're attracted to each other, but because they just genuinely like hanging out. And I want to say too that like, Up to this point, their relationship really has been developing and Simon, it's kind of going against his better instincts. There's a quote here that I want to share where he's thinking and it says, Simon caught her gaze, his eyes burning hot and intense into hers. A warning bell sounded in his mind. He wanted her. He wanted her so desperately he was straining against his clothing, but he could never, ever so much as touch her because to do so would be to shatter every last one of her dreams and rake or not, Simon wasn't certain he could live with himself if he did that. So I think that's an important thing to share is that Simon's really wrestling this whole time with knowing that they have these two totally alternate futures. His is, I am not getting married. I am not having children. And Daphne really wants to have kids and have a large family. She's from a large family. So as much as the attraction is there between them, he he knows he can't let it happen. To do so would be to shatter her dreams. Yes. And um, so they're at this ball and she's missing him. And then he appears because he was like, I had nothing better to do and I'd rather be here with you. Yeah. And so while they're at this ball, they go off to the side to talk together and a friend of his father's comes up and tells Simon that he has letters for him from his father. And Simon's just like, burn them and leaves. And as he storms away, Daphne's still there and the Duke is like, listen, I'm sick. The doctor says it's any day now. Can I give these letters to you for safekeeping? And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't know if that's a good idea, but he's like, listen, you know, I think you're the perfect person to have them. And she doesn't want them to be destroyed. She doesn't, she doesn't know, right? She has no context as to why Simon is so upset about this. She knows nothing about his relationship with his father. So she's like, okay, I'll keep them. But like, man, warning bells right there in my head. I was like, no, don't touch it. But um, you know what? That's not the biggest problem in this book. No, it's not. It's the least of our worries. Yeah. So at this point, Simon does give 
Daphne a little bit of more information about his father because she does probe and at first he shuts down but then he admits that they were not on good terms and he does not want to talk about him so at least she understands that something's not right and it's not a subject he enjoys discussing and after kind of that discussion Simon turns silent and brooding and Daphne keeps trying to like pick up the conversation again but he isn't having it and so then she's like I'm gonna go out to the garden and he's like no, you shouldn't do that. I can't go out there with you. And she's like, I'm going, come on, come with me. And he begs her, quote, not to do this, but he can't resist. And he follows her into the garden and he pulls her behind a hedge and kisses her. And it is an absolute like cataclysmic event when they kiss and he starts saying things like I never knew I never dreamed and yet he admits like well he did dream yeah (laughs) and he is like pulling down her bodice and uncovering her breast when who should stumble upon them but Anthony comes storming in and shoves him aside oh my god so and they start (laughs) punching each other and Daphne's like you idiots stop fighting And she tries to intervene and someone she doesn't even know who like knocks her aside and then she ends up like on her back stuck in her dress in like a thorn bush of some kind. And then it gets them to stop though because they hear her like cries of dismay actual like oh no this hurts and they (laughs) both snap out of their rage and look at her and they're like oh dear god and they extract her from the bush. And then Anthony has to give her his coat. And then Anthony's like, pistols at dawn, dude. Because he's like, you're going to have to marry her. And he's like, I can't, I won't marry her. Yeah, so Simon is shaken in so many ways here because everything has gone wrong. He's lost the person he cares about. He lost his best friend. He has been beaten up. He's he's just physically, mentally so beaten down. And he says, if it... If it could be anybody, Daph, it would be you. I promise you that. And he's stuttering here, and it's written. I, I just think that it's it's a little hard for me to try to reread the stuttering. And it's it's kind of wonderful that in these moments of high stress, you know, we, we get this characterization from him. It make it really makes him seem very vulnerable. And Daphne replies, I've always known that I wasn't the sort of woman men dream of, but I never thought anyone would prefer death to marriage with me. And Daphne is, of course, really hurt, but she doesn't understand really what's going on. Yes, he he was trying, like, with his, if it could be anyone, it would be you. Like, he's trying to make her understand that it's not her. Like, it has something to do with him. And it's, like, his own internal things. But obviously, like, Anthony's still, like, hovering, being Mr. Bareface. And, like, he's just been beat up. His eyes almost swollen shut. And he's, like... He can't really give her the whole backstory, but... And he's unwilling to give her the whole backstory. Yeah, and he really is. He doesn't want to tell her any of this. Like, he's... This is his own secret shame that really no one knows about. True. And so they escort her out of the ball. No one sees her, we think. But her dress is in tatters. She's got Anthony's coat on her. And she goes home and at home once Colin gets home she recruits him to help her figure out where the duel is being held because she has to save Simon she's like this is crazy he can't die for me like we he he has to agree to marry me and Colin even says like someone saw you and she's like what did they see and he's like well they saw you go to the garden but that's all they saw but it's still 
in a gossipy society. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Because if they find out that then Anthony, who's good friends with Simon, and everyone knows that, if they had a duel suddenly in the morning and someone saw Simon and Daphne leave the ballroom, it's it would ruin her. Absolutely. It would. So Colin is going to help her figure out where the duel is being held. And he's only going to do it because she admits that she loves him. And it doesn't matter that he told her he wouldn't marry her. Like, she loves him and she can't let him be killed. (laughs) Yeah. She feels like he needs her to save him, which is true. He's not going to save himself. Oh, no, he's not. They cut over to Anthony and Simon at dawn and Simon's just resigned to having himself be killed because he knows Anthony's still pissed and is has a hot temper and is going to shoot like for a target. And Simon's not going to aim on his best friend because he knows he messed up. And Simon didn't even bring a second. Like, he yeah. didn't even. He didn't he even. He was just it. like, it's, I'm, this is over. I'm done. Yeah. It's really sad. And so Daphne comes charging up and goes to stop this duel. And they're like, what are you doing here? And Daphne runs up to Simon and like punches him in the face. <laughs> and he's like, what the hell was that for? She's like, stay down. He can't shoot you if you're on the ground. Oh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of punching in this book, but that one's at least kind of cute. Yes. <laughs> And so she tells him that someone saw them. She's like, you can't die. Like, someone saw us. And so he knows that her life will be ruined. Even if he tries to get out of this and he still says no, her life will be ruined because someone saw them. And if he dies on the dueling field, people are going to know that it was because of something she did and life will be over for her. That being said, he tries to tell her again that he can't marry her and it's for her own good. He's trying to protect her by not marrying her, which she's like, but you have to actually marry me now. So finally, he does agree. He says, I will marry you, but you have to listen to me and what I have to say, and then you have to agree you want to marry me. And he says to her, and this is the direct quote, I can't have children. And she says, how do you know? And he says, I just do. So she says, you're worth it. And they agree to get married. And they have a wedding. It's a a very sweet wedding, and they laugh during their kiss, and Hyacinth has this very cute line about how... If they're laughing now, they'll probably be laughing forever. Sometime before the wedding, though, Violet gives Daphne some semblance of the sex talk, which is pathetic. Oh, it is the worst sex talk on the face of the planet. I wrote in all caps... That my, my notes this page were just in all caps. I was very angry. And Daphne is perilously naive about sex. All Violet says is that it doesn't have to be unpleasant and you just do it enough so that you have a baby. And then Daphne's like, wait, I have more questions. Wait, like, and then Violet just leaves. And I know Violet's like, this is too awkward ooh. for me. I can't do this. So Violet's like... I feel uncomfortable with this, so I'm just going to, like, you're just going to have to figure this out on your own. Because even though I'm your mother and I've done this before. Eight times. Eight times she's done this before. And here's the thing later. Which is hilarious because that was actually a little bit of a funny part in this because Daphne's like, so you've done it eight times? And then her mom's like, okay, well, I did it more than eight. But, like, that's not the point. (laughs) Yeah, and later in the book, Simon says what we're all thinking when Simon finds out how how naive Daphne is about sex. He's like, he has this quote about the same, like she had eight children and she was uncomfortable talking to you about this. And I'm like, okay, Simon, like, thanks for saying what we're all thinking. Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) it's just, it's, 
I have a lot of opinions about this. We'll get to there. Uh, that note, though, with this is I feel like this was the stupid period of 1800s through like the early 1900s of like, don't let women know that there's sex in the world. Like, keep their ankles hidden. Tables have to have tablecloths because you can't see their legs because men will get turned on by legs. Well, I, yeah, I'm not saying that this isn't like historically correct. I'm just saying I don't oh, like no, it. Oh, no, I don't like this either. <laughs> and honestly, like to go into that so unprepared is just it's just pure stupidity yeah um and especially from a a very loving caring doting close mother who can literally talk to her kids about everything who's so close to her kids i'm getting into opinions but it's just it's mind-boggling let's move on yes so after the wedding simon takes her to cliveden castle which is the country seat which is where he grew up he doesn't have the most pleasant memories there because there's a lot of bad feelings that he associates that because he had a lot of bad feelings growing up. And yet um, he still takes her there because it's the closest property to London and she can see a little bit of like his estate. Yeah. And they end up stopping at an inn overnight through a series of events. And of course, there's only one bedroom. Oh no. And Daphne's like, well, that's not a problem. And he's like, it is a problem. And then she's like, wait. Don't you want to sleep with me? Oh my God, you said you can't have kids. Can you not have sex? Even though she doesn't even know the word for sex. Like, oh. No, she's like, can you not have marital relations? And he's yeah. like, can I not do what? Hey, now what now? <laughs> yeah. And of course, his manly gene takes over. And he one laugh a little bit about it. Because he's like, oh no, like we can still have sex. Like that's still a thing. <laughs> yeah. We can still enjoy this. Yeah, But he wasn't planning to, like, consummate the marriage in an inn, but after she kind of confesses her ignorance towards sex, he's, like, kind of walking her through it. And, you know, she – and it was really embarrassing for her. She's like, this is actually embarrassing for me. Like, I feel so stupid, and I don't like feeling stupid. Yeah. And, like, I need you to walk me through this because I don't know what's happening. And so they have – Encounter number one because he, they he walks can't. her through it. <laughs> yeah, they can't not. They are so feeling each other and yes. So since he is refusing to have children, not that he's physically incapable of having children, but because he just refuses to have children. One thing we get through the encounters is that he always pulls out right before he um, has his orgasm. And Daphne, not knowing anything about sex whatsoever, she just thinks it's normal because obviously she. She's never done this before. She's never heard about any of it. So she's like, oh, this is just what happens. Yeah. And I think anybody reading it or listening to it can only know that that's not going to turn out well. No. And so once they get to the castle, they quickly... They sequester themselves in a bedroom for an entire week. There you go. We don't get any encounters there, but literally it just says they sequester themselves into the bedroom for an entire week. And I'm just got to say like, ow. Yeah. <laughs> so. Especially not like having done this before. Like, <laughs> ow. <Yeah. laughs> so after the week and she finally emerges and Daphne gets to know the staff. Yes. Particularly, she gets to know the housekeeper who starts to share a little bit about Simon's childhood, including that he had a stutter when he was a kid and that his father treated him terribly because of it. And then they talk about... Kelsey, other um, Kelsey, why didn't you read your notes the way you wrote them? Because you wrote, his father treated him like shit. <laughs> and I just felt like that was very accurate. <laughs> I will say it again then. 
I was <laughs> trying to not swear all the time. Anywho. Um, now move on. I was just, I was just teasing him. That was cute. <laughs> but he does treat him like shit. <laughs> and then also, too, she comments about how Simon's a strong person and, like, you need strong seed to get a strong child and something along those lines. And that just gets Daphne thinking. Like, she doesn't immediately put one and two together, but it starts to kind of, like, enter her brain a little bit. Yeah, the housekeeper was originally his mother's maid, and she was around for all of the miscarriages and the stillborn. And so she was even saying that, like, maybe the Duke's seed was the problem, you know, that this you need strong, healthy seed to yada, yada, yada. And so, yeah, Daphne just kind of, like, files that away because really she's trying to process that the Duke was such an asshole to his son and that Simon had a stutter. And this really makes Daphne admire Simon even more and she just is really taken with his strength of character and how he was able to accomplish so much even when his own father was willing to basically say that he was dead because of a stutter and she's like you wouldn't even know it looking at him today and she very much admired his perseverance so then that evening she is just overcome and she does admit that she loves him and she sees that freaks him out a little bit yeah it's the first time anyone in his entire life has said those words to him so he's quite moved by it yes and she's just like i don't need to hear it you don't need to comment on it i just i just needed to tell you that yeah And then they have encounter number two. Yes, they do. Getting it on. And afterwards is when shit hits the fan. Yeah, it sure does. (laughs) Because he pulls out this time and goes to cuddle with her. And she suddenly puts one plus one together. And realized that the seed the housekeeper was talking about was what Simon has ejaculated all over the sheet. Yeah, and she realizes that he's purposefully preventing them from having kids, not that he can't. So they have a pretty big argument at this point. And the quote is that she says, why can't you have children, Simon? And he says, again, the details aren't important, Daphne. And that really irritated me because, yes, the details are important, Simon. And she's upset and screaming things like you took advantage of my stupidity of my ignorance and she tries to kick him out of the room and then he's like this is my room she's like fine then i'll leave which i just thought was funny yeah so they just have this epic argument where finally it culminates in simon saying some truths for the first time and Yes, and it was a cruel, hard expression, one she'd never seen on his face before. But Hasting dies with me, he said. All those cousins he was so worried about inheriting, he shrugged and let out a brittle laughter. They all had daughters. Isn't that something? Yeah, he is real messed up. His dad really messed him up. We'll give him that. His dad was an ass. His life was hard. It was really messed up. So now for the first time, Daphne understands what she agreed to, which is never having children because Simon doesn't want to, which is very different than Simon actually can't. So Simon storms out and upon his return, he finds out that Daphne has moved to another room and locked the door. So this is the next day. They've had a whole day to kind of cool off, but he comes back and Daphne's got the door locked and they have another fight and he tells her to get back in their room because she does let him in so that they can talk, but she refuses. And she actually says, no means no. 
So, uh-oh, Daphne. Yes. So Daphne also says that he is not his own man, that his father still owns him. And even when they have sex, his father is always there. His father, when he, she even says, like, when you pull out and spill your seat on the bed, your father is with us. Like, that is, that is your father there, not just you and me, because he's trying to say, no, it's only about us. And, and she's really right in this, right? That his father is holding over him from the grave. Yes. And they're really upset. And this is another where we kind of toe the line and the idea of consent. And he says, I can make you want me, he whispered. I know. His voice dropped even lower, hoarse and urgent. And even if I couldn't, you're mine. You belong to me. I could force you to let me stay. Daphne felt about 100 years old as she said, you would never do that. And he knew she was right. So all he did was wrench himself away from her and storm out of the room. Yeah, so they're both a little bit uh, irredeemable in these moments. They they have some some tough moments, some tough words that they say back and forth to each other. So then Simon makes a mistake. He leaves and gets absolutely shit-faced. Oh, yeah. He gets rip-roaring drunk and then comes back and he does the lovey-dovey knocking on the door. Let me in. Do I miss you? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's a little slapsticky. And Daphne is also a little bit naive with drunk people. She is like, I've seen drunk people before. I've seen my brothers drunk. Okay, like you've seen barely any drunk people then. Because even if you've seen your brothers drunk, they're your family. You don't really know what drunk people are like, lady. Yeah. And he's not really apologizing, but he is, you know, saying nice things. He's got his drunk truth on. That's all. Yeah. He's just got a lot of drunk truth on. And so she's like, you need to sleep it off. You're drunk. You need to sleep it off. And he's like, okay. And he's in her room and he just goes and lays on the bed. And he's like, but will you stay with me? Yeah. He begs her to stay and she knows that she shouldn't, but she falls asleep with him. And after an hour, she wakes up and realizes that he is aroused. Yes. And she had no idea that could happen when guys were asleep. So she kind of starts to instigate a bit and we get some idea of like him waking up for any of you who are worried this is going to be a little triggery, just FYI, if you have not had those moments yet, this is kind of our main focal point of that conversation. Yeah. So she instigates sex and he is still kind of drunk and half asleep and goes along with it. And we kind of get that he's awake, but he's looks like he's more just following her lead because he's really susceptible at this time. And so she... But she's also feeling... She's feeling powerful. She's feeling really powerful. The quote is, he was asleep and probably still more than a little bit drunk, and she could do whatever she wanted with him. She could have whatever she wanted. And so there's also a quote where he says, oh, Daphne, he moaned, his head tossing from side to side. I need you. I need you now. So there are these moments of him kind of being complicit, but he does not have his whole faculty, and Daphne is as we know, feeling powerful, knowing these things. Yes, and now that she has a little bit more information about like where babies come from and how babies come to be, she instigates where she's on top and they have a good time and then she brings him to his point and right when he would normally pull out, which he does go to do, she basically wraps herself around him and doesn't allow it. Yeah, and it does say he feebly attempted. However, she 
quote unquote, bears down and wraps her arms around him. And then when they do part, she curls up into a little ball as if to keep every drop of him inside her. So there's definitely some really bad decisions that have just happened. Yes. She had her powerful moment and she was like, this is the only way I'm ever going to have kids. And she also was like, he needs a catalyst to change his mind because he's never going to get out of that break with his dad. And having kids isn't going to like do anything because his dad is dead. Well, I don't I don't know. But anyhow. But anyway, that's kind of like her justification, which we don't even really need to talk about. So Simon, though, is 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 so upset. He is stuttering. He is furious. He is. He it's real it's really a sad passage. The his whole yes. his whole reaction after this is completely justified and completely heartbreaking. He feels obviously betrayed. He's reduced to like I said the stuttering again and he leaves the next day and leaves a terribly hard letter for her that says something to the effect of, you know, if your efforts were met with success, my steward will know where to find me. Yeah, and I think he's very justified in it. And then she is really taken aback because he left her. And she knew that she had done something that she may not have been forgiven for, but she never actually believed he would leave. Yeah, she's she's pretty upset too, rightfully so, because she did a bad and she knows that. And so she ends up deciding to go to London to be closer to her family. But she ends up staying at Hastings' house. She doesn't go live with her family again. She goes to, to Simon's house. And she does a lot of thinking during that time in London. So one of the passages is she hadn't planned it. She hadn't looked at him while he was sleeping and thought, he's probably still drunk. I can make love to him and capture his seed and he'll never know. It hadn't happened that way. Daphne wasn't quite sure how it had happened, but one moment she was above him and the next she'd realized he wasn't going to withdraw in time and she'd made certain he couldn't. So even though Daphne isn't clear with what happened, she knows it's not good. Not that that, not that, that redeems her. No, it doesn't at all. But there is the acknowledgement that there was an error on her part and she does realize that he had a right to leave. Yeah. And she's not expecting him to be back. And so she's trying to figure out how she's going to live a life without him. Yeah. And so weeks go by about, I think it's about uh, seven weeks go by-ish because when she finally decides to write to Simon because she has missed her courses by three weeks. So her brothers are pissed at Simon because she's alone in London and very unhappy. And so Anthony happens to come by when she's done writing this note and he ends up currying the note to Simon. And he promises not to read the note though, so Anthony doesn't know. And when Anthony finds him there, he says Daphne is in London, but he won't force him to go back because he needs to come on his own and does point out to Simon that Simon's in love with Daphne. And Simon looks miserable, and Anthony kind of leaves it at that. In his one not completely dickish moment of this book, Anthony leaves without <laughs> physical violence. Go, Anthony. Simon, at this point, he really wasn't that far away. He was, like, on his next closest estate. He wanted to be within reach if Daphne needed him, and he was kind of all ready to go back to see Daphne anyway. He had time to think about what she'd done, but also his reaction to it, and kind of dissected that just for his own personal growth and personal understanding. 
But really what we get from this is he'd fled because he couldn't bear the way he'd been with her. She'd reduced him to the stuttering, stammering fool of his childhood. She'd rendered him mute, brought back that awful, choking feeling, the horror of not being able to say what he felt. And she tricked him, or had she? He rubbed his hands wearily against his eye and forehead as he tried to remember the exact details of that fateful morning. Daphne had definitely been the leader of their lovemaking, but he distinctly recalled his own voice urging her on. He should not have encouraged what he knew he could not stop. So there is Simon's justification for what it's worth. So... After getting the letter, he heads back to London. And when he goes to the house to see Daphne, he finds out that she's out riding. And he's like, pregnant women should not be riding. Even I know that. Yeah, and she is actually upset because she just found out that she's not pregnant and she has no relationship with Simon and she's not sure how to fix it. And so she's out riding recklessly and she hears a rider approach. So then she goes into a gallop and she's search, looking behind her to see what's happening. And then whew, she gets clotheslined by a branch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Simon is, of course, really upset. And I'm just going to read the quotes from their exchange because this is kind of their reconciliation a bit. This is the moment where they finally have their conversation again and it starts their whole relationship back up. Finally. <sighs> yes. And he's like, are you okay? She's like, why do you care? She asked flatly. You didn't want this baby. No, I didn't. But now that it's here, I don't want you to kill it. This baby, good God, I talk as if it ever actually existed, as if it were ever more than a product of my imagination. She looked down and when she spoke again, her voice was achingly sad and my dreams. And so, but then he left and she's like, but why did you leave? And she's like, it wasn't about what I did. His eyes met hers evenly. I didn't like what you did, but that wasn't why you left, she persisted. And so they do have their acknowledgement of the event of that morning. Yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit light. I do like what he says. I do like that he says, I didn't like what you did. I yeah, I, I don't know if it's enough. I, I feel like they need to have more conversation, but at least it gets them to the next point. Yeah, so it's at least a good starting point. And she also, you know, openly admits that there is no baby. She's like, I was wrong. And and he thinks at first that she lied to him. And she says, no, I, I really, truly didn't lie to you. I really thought that I was pregnant. Maybe I willed my courses away. They've never been totally consistent. Consistent. And so, yeah. Then they talk about, does he want children, right? Because he's never thought about that before. He's no. always let his father rule him. And she says, if you don't want a child because you don't want one, that's one thing. But if you deny yourself the joy of fatherhood because of a dead man, then you're a coward. And I know that's harsh, and she knows that that's harsh, but she feels like it needs to be said. I don't know. I feel like it's beating a dead horse. <laughs> yeah, but at least they have their conversation and they make their way back to Hastings' house. And when they get there, all three older Bridgerton brothers are there, ready to, you know, get in Simon's face about why he left and his their sister's been so unhappy and he was mean, grr. And he's like, get out of my house. Yeah. Like, I'm talking to her. So the Bridgerton brothers are not just there to puff up. They're also there because they say they won't leave until... He convinces them that he loves Daphne. And Daphne's like, oh my God, no, this is not happening. Get out of my house. Get out of my house. I don't want to pressure Simon into this. And Simon just like, is like, everybody hold on a second. And he like takes her 
into the hallway, still in their view, but far enough away that they can have a private conversation. And he tells her that he is in love with her. And then they start making out a lot. And then he kind of like turns around and is like, can y'all leave so that I can take my wife upstairs? (laughs) So yes, (laughs) they are finally alone and they have encounter number four, where Simon says to her that he wants to prove his love to her. And he does so by finishing inside of her, which I think is a little bit too soon. But they actually do have a conversation after encounter number four where she asks him, like, do you have regrets? And he says, not regrets, just thoughts. And he really never thought about having kids before and what that would be like. And really his biggest fear is that they would have a child like him. And she's like, well, that won't matter because we'll love the child and he'll have you to lean on and teach him things. And it, it is wonderful and sweet and and that's great. But she realizes that there's also one last piece that she hasn't been forthcoming about. And those are the letters. Exactly. So Simon is like, okay. And she's like, should I, do you want to read them? And he's like, no. And then she's like, do you want to burn them? And he's like, no. And she's like, so should I put them back in my desk? And he's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, he's just very indifferent towards them. It's a bit of a, as far as like a point, it's kind of a bit of a letdown. See, I like it. I think it's cool because it's unexpected, right? He No, I like that they didn't open them because I think that there was no reason to open the letters. I 100% agree with that. There was no reason to. And I think it shows that his father doesn't have a hold over him like he used to anymore, right? He doesn't need yeah. to know. He's just trying to figure things out for himself. So I, I liked it. I remember being let down at first too. I was like, what are in the letters? But uh, after a reread, I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'm into it. (laughs) And we also have an epilogue because Julia Quinn is really great about her epilogues. Yes, she is. So the epilogue opens to the birth of their fourth child in which they finally have a son to carry on the dukedom. Yes, they do. They've got three older daughters. And what we're actually reading is the Lady Whistledown article. And Lady Whistledown has correctly we find deduced the name of their son because they've named their kids in alphabetical order again and so she said could their son be named anything other than david yes (laughs) and then he's like how does she know this she is spies in here i know it (laughs) yes but they just show that they are happy and in love and have four beautiful children and he is very happy being a father to their four children And that's the end of the book, and there is much to discuss. But before we do that, shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. So we have a book recommendation this week, which comes from a friend of ours on Instagram, whose name is Fumi. And she is a super account to follow. She has tons of great book recommendations. Her handle is when Fumi met romance and it's when underscore Fumi, which is spelled F 
U N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, I underscore met underscore romance. And I highly recommend you check her out. So she is a huge fan of Beverly Jenkins and she wrote an awesome essay about her, which I'm going to link to on our blog and our Instagram, and you should totally read the article about it. But I wanted to know if you're new to Beverly Jenkins, where you should start. So what she says is she recommends Forbidden by Beverly Jenkins is the perfect start on a non-regency journey. The start of this trilogy, you'll be entranced by the character's chemistry, the history of the nation, and the strength of the plot. Fall in love with the Fontaines. So I think that sounds intriguing. The cover looks beautiful. So I'm excited. I haven't read any Beverly Jenkins and I need to start. So thank you, Fumi. And if you have a book recommendation, we would love to hear from you. So we know that we are two middle-class straight white girls talking about upper-class straight white people falling in love over 100 years ago. But there is so much more out there. So if you have something different or an inclusive author that you love, we want to hear about it and we want to share it here. Let us know your thoughts through email. We're at romancepod at gmail.com. And this episode in particular, we know has some troubling themes to discuss. If you've got some thoughts of your own, send us a message and we'll share some of them on a later episode. We definitely want to continue this conversation. So once again, our email is romancepod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at T as in Tom, N as in Nancy Strumpets. And we're also at the same name on Facebook and YouTube. Yep, same name on YouTube. And all of our episodes are on YouTube as well. And if you want to be in the know, sign up for our email notifications on our website. Our website is romancepod.com, and there you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. Yeah, and I work really hard on those email updates. So (laughs) anyhow, you're missing out if you don't sign up. (laughs) Anyhow, our last thing to say here in the parlor is to rate, review, and subscribe. We are a new podcast. In fact, today, uh, again, a little bit behind the scenes here today apple podcasts approved us <laughs> so i know that that shows when we're actually recording this episode but we are getting some episodes in the bank because kelsey is getting married we have alluded to this tell, so tell. <laughs> yeah very exciting so but now you can find us on apple podcasts on spotify on stitcher on TuneIn, and by the time you hear this episode i am sure that other podcatchers like overcast which just update their feeds from apple podcasts will have us as well so whatever you use to listen to podcasts you should be able to find us there but the thing that helps us get found as a new podcast is ratings and reviews and not only does it help us get found but it really helps us make the show better so if you're feeling like you've got some opinions about things we want to hear them let us know so let's pick this book apart there's a lot of thoughts and feelings yeah so Uh, I will take it away if you don't mind. So I generally think that there are three main problems with the plot. So those three problems are Simon's secret pain. Number two is Violet withholding. And number three is Anthony being a hot-headed jackass. And I think that all of these factors contribute heavily to Daphne's dumb decisions, which 
is what I think that the book title should have been because she makes <sighs> so, so many good. dumb decisions. She really does. But I feel like, and I'm not trying to justify her bad decisions, but she is 20 years old. She is naive. She has previously in early parts of the book been rewarded for taking a step romantically and kind of pushing Simon to, to do things he wasn't yet ready to do. And so she's been rewarded. And so she, I don't know, I just think there's a lot of things that lead to her dumb decisions. They don't justify them. They really don't. But it's not, it's not totally out of the blue for me that she makes a foolish decision like that. No. And I think that it could be it could have been a book where Simon and Daphne's relationship was allowed to progress naturally and she was seeing other people and Simon decided he didn't like that and then maybe that allowed him to reevaluate his stance on marriage simply because he knew that he had to have Daphne in his life and couldn't stand seeing her with someone else. Or even that they had everything had transpired but then he let her know his secret pain earlier and then they got to actually have some conversations about it instead of like just arguments and duels and things yeah. so yeah so yeah and I think that you know for me like Daphne thinking marriage was just going to be a jolly good idea even though Simon was more willing to die than get married to her yeah and she's like I must save him and he's like this is not gonna go well and she's like but don't die and I feel like it's supposed to be a big romantic gesture, but now when I re read it, I just felt, I just felt bad. My biggest thing was I felt a lot of her words when she takes him into the garden, when she is like, you need to save me because I'm going to be ruined unless you marry me. I thought all of that was just like, and I don't even know if she realized she was doing it, but I just, it was just a little bit manipulative. Oh, I thought it was manipulative. And I think it was like, it was honest, like she was trying to save him. She really thought she was doing good in that moment in the trying to get him to marry her because she was like, either he dies or he marries me. And one, he's alive and one, he's dead. And I have to live with that and my asshole of a yeah. brother. So I'll do two in my notes. Since I did just see Hamilton, which I mentioned at the beginning of this thing, and I'm just like, <laughs> Hamilton's life would have been so much different and longer if he hadn't like had all these duels that would take place in that lifetime and this whole culture because this Hamilton's life actually no the duels were probably around the same time Anthony is bothering to duel Simon you know in fictional life yeah and this whole idea of like duel solving problems and duels it's like duels are dumb yeah duels are really dumb and yeah so I also just felt like it was so frustrating that Anthony was just willing to be a hot-headed jackass and throw away his life, his best friend's life, his sister's life. He just wasn't thinking. And Benedict backs him up. And Colin's I, the I, one I think brother that, who, like, at least has a little brains, even though they refer to him as the idiot Bridgerton. Like, he has a little brains. I don't know. We're going to read Anthony, Benedict, and Colin's books soon. And my memory of those – now, my memory of this book was also very different because I had forgotten about the whole consent I stuff. I remembered it very clearly it was the one problem I had with the book at the beginning like when I read it I was like a bit iffy about it and it yeah. really stuck in my brain yeah so that was a very firm memory so it rereading it I was trying to find the redemption in it and like try to feel, like see why it wasn't bad and then I was like no I still don't like it it's still not good so I I'm gonna comment on that I, I want to mention what I was gonna say about the three brothers though is that 
I think that all three of them get way different and way better characterizations in the next book. Are their their own books? I think okay. Anthony is like I remember liking in his book. I hated him in this Anthony's book, and I remember wonderful. loving Anthony. He's, loving Anthony and then the same Benedict we don't get much Benedict here but Benedict is very thoughtful I don't remember kind of Benedict scholarly oh I love I, Benedict I, I remember okay. loving Colin so, I remember nothing about Benedict so and then Colin also is way more than this aloof guy but also Colin's book takes place at least eight years later than yes. this book so he's had eight years to grow so it's it, it, anyhow but I want to comment back on what you were saying before which is just remembering this and having a problem with it and I I thought it was interesting because there's been so much you know noise about this book because a lot of people are rereading it and I was like oh yeah I forgot about that part. And that was kind of troubling to me. Like, I probably read this book five, six years ago, something mm-hmm. like that, for the first time. I have read it more than once. So I don't know when the second or third time that I've reread it was. But I was like, why didn't I remember that? Why didn't I remember that as part of their story? What I remembered was that they pretended to be together and then they ended up getting married and that he had a stutter. Those were the things that I remembered. So I was like, okay, well, what. I I thought there must be something that redeemed it in my eyes, right? Like, so I was reading the book. I was really trying to look for passages about consent. And what I took away is I still don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it's redeemed. I think it doesn't look good in the 2019 lens. I don't think what Daphne did is okay. I don't think a lot of the things that Simon did was okay. I don't think what Violet did was okay. I don't think what Anthony did was okay. I'm kind of just mad at everybody and yes I'm I'm mad at Daphne too but if that scene wasn't there which is such a small part of the book I'd love her she's strong she's funny she's interesting she's got some great quotes she's got great conversation and and she's a cool character so it's it's just weird I still feel conflicted and I was trying to trying to really also think about what Julia Quinn was saying about this. And what I found is that between the quotes of like Daphne thinking about what happened and Simon thinking about what happened, neither of them had a clear picture of who was, for lack of a better term, at fault for that situation happening. Now, I as a reader think Daphne is the one who was in control and Simon was incapacitated and therefore Daphne was at fault. But I also feel like if the author doesn't even know who is at fault, then what's happening here? But I think that's something that with today's culture and everything, there is so much in the sense of like, you know, you need to have consent and you need to do this. And I think that there is such a, I think this scene is just very realistic in the sense that there's a lot of blurred lines behind it. You know, it's like really identifying what was problematic and what wasn't. And knowing that in like your own personal life, you know, I know that like for me, I have ended up in situations where I, you know, needed to get myself out of them. And, but, you know, when I think back about that, you know, I, I fully acknowledge the parts in that I took to get myself to those places, you know, and I fully Mm -hmm. acknowledge like what was going through my head and what put myself, what put myself there. And yes, I needed to get out. And yes, it wasn't like, it could have been avoided, but it was like just bad decisions were made in Every, with everyone involved, which I think that can be said at any time you're more than one person and you're doing something. Does that make sense? Because there are a lot yeah. of blurred lines. And I think the conversation about consent does need to acknowledge that there are blurred lines. And it's really, you know, discussing what's okay, what's not okay. 
and then also when some like when something happens that's not okay also realizing your own part in that does that make sense yeah without putting blame on the victim right like even even if you made bad decisions that get got and this is the this isn't you no i I get like the general you even if somebody makes bad decisions that gets them into a situation the moment that they say I want out of this situation. That should be yes. Respected. That should be respected. It's, Absolutely, it's very, it's very uh, rarely respected. Yes, right. And I hopefully, hopefully, we're growing as a culture and a society. And I think sometimes it's not even it's it's not respected immediately. I think that's where a lot of it comes in. I think a lot of it's like you get that that push. You know, it's like oh, but you don't really mean that. It's like. So you, but you shouldn't well, have to reiterate exactly where, yourself. And that's where this is, is because, sorry. Uh, well, that's exactly where, like, earlier in this book, Daphne is like, when she's pushing Simon out into the garden, he is like, no, Daphne, don't do this. And then he follows her and rewards her with with finally kissing her, you know? And so she is like, I pushed the boundaries here and I got what I wanted. That that actually what, what turned out was something good, even though, yes, then there's the duel and the yada, 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 but that still leads to them being married and she feels like she's in love with this man and he needs her and it's worth it, right? So she is rewarded for pushing the boundaries and she gets what she wants. And then another time she kind of, you know, she pushes the boundaries. I, I feel like saying pushes the boundaries is, is not enough because she, no, but she clearly violates him. And yes, but I think she is naive enough because of all of the people around her, because of her mother not telling her things, because we have to remember that this story and the time to when they, when they have this, um, this scene together is less than two months. Yes. So they have literally known each other less than two months. And she has known about sex for a few weeks. Not even. She's so, known about sex for like a week and a half. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. It's, it's it, well, they, I think they've been married two weeks. But it, like, it's so little time. It's so little yeah. time. Does that, again, does that justify anything? Absolutely. No. And right? I think. But does it make it more, more understandable why bad decisions were made? Yes. I think but so. But I think that's why, you know, it, it can't be. I hate to call it a blame game because like in in one sense you do, you know, you do have someone who takes it too far. She took it too far. That's 100% a blaming sit. Like you can 100% say that. But at the same time too, you can't really say 100% her fault either. So I think that's just a conversation that needs to continue to happen and everyone has their own their own lines but that's the interesting thing about this conversation and that's why these things are so gray and that's why they are such a hot topic right now is because we're realizing the world's a lot more gray than we ever thought it was and we need to try to pick apart the gray and figure out where's the good where's the bad well and here's something i think we should discuss too which is like if the roles were reversed how would we be reacting to it right if if simon had taken advantage of daphne I think we would be much harsher. I think and so. I, is that fair no, of us? I'm not 100%. I, I, don't know. I even made that comment. I'm like, if if the roles were reversed, you know, like we're trying to find a reason to like give da- da- to redeem, redeem Daphne. Daphne. We're trying to find that reason. And if the roles were reversed, we'd just completely write off Simon and we'd be like, he's just a terrible human, like blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know. If, if Simon had the same backstory, if Simon, if literally the entire characters were reversed and Simon knew nothing about sex and yada, 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 you know, and all those things, I might give him a little bit of the same, pa- not pass, the same 
kind of struggle that I'm giving yes. Daphne, right? But but I absolutely would probably be saying rape. I mean, I would be saying rape. Yeah. I would be saying he raped her. Well, and that's that's the conversation is like here it's like, okay, this is a conversation of consent. And then you and I even had the same struggle. It's like, do we call this a conversation about consent or do we call this a conversation about rape? Yeah, and I think that I I am after reading this scene, and I think this is a, this will be a controversial thing, but I I don't feel like it's I I struggle to feel like it's it's rape because he is an active participant. Yes. The fact is he wants to have sex with her. It is not that he doesn't want to have sex with her. It is that he does not want to have a child with her. And so that is where the line is crossed and the consent is crossed. It is not that he doesn't want to have sex. It is that he doesn't want to get her pregnant. And the fact that at the end of the act, she doesn't pull away and respect that, that's where I think it's different in this case. He is an active, willing participant. He is not completely passed out. He is egging her on. He is speaking with her. He's asking her things. Where did you learn that? Oh, Daphne, I need you so much. So that's why I don't necessarily think this is right. And I think that you just put that in very clear, concise terms. And I'm going to leave it at that because I can't say it better. All right. So I also think maybe a, a quick conversation on Simon's stutter. Yes. God, his dad fucked him up so bad. I'm sorry. Oh, he is such a vulnerable, beautiful little boy. And his struggles and, and her writing of, of Simon's childhood is heartbreaking. I was so angry. I finished the prologue and I was truly angry. And had that man been a real human person, I would have told him off. Yeah, it's really sad. And it's just like, it's frustrating because he does let his kind of anger at his father rule his life and I will say that Simon's decisions throughout the whole book and his whole refusal to marry and not even really consider it until literally his life was on the line you know I think that as all like without the prologue and without his learning about his past we would have been like we wouldn't have liked him nearly as much because we're like eh like why yeah like why is he doing this he's being such a jerk like can he get over it but because we had the prologue where we really learned the backstory and we learned the struggle that he went through, yeah, I think that that makes him so much more of a dynamic character and that really does give justification for his choices and why it's so hard for him to let those things go because this has been his life for 28 years. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense to me. So let's talk a little bit more about our hero. What would you rate Simon? Simon for me, see, I... Like I said, because of the prologue, because we had his backstory and we had it so hard, I actually rate him a little higher. Like, I think Simon's a bit more of like a seven. Yeah, I agree. I I would give him an eight if there wasn't the shadow of the incident kind of hanging over this book. Simon, I remember Simon. I remember his stutter. It is such a unique characterization. And there's a lot more in the book about how he overcame it how his personality was formed based on this stutter Mm -hmm. and there are some really great passages about his adult life and how he kind of rose to who he was because of the way he acted and I love that about him but I completely give him a seven as well yes and I think yeah so for me and I just love like you said him having the stutter those moments of vulnerability just made me like ache for him and it made me love him even more because he was a kind an honest person and honestly most of his dickish stuff just came from his past and like if you took that away he would probably just be this wonderful human being so 
I really liked him. Seven. All right. So. Daphne. I'm going to rate her lower. It's, this is a hard one, Kelsey. Give it to me. I'm just going to give her a five. Wow. We are in the same boat this week for sure. Because yeah. <laughs> I have such a hard time with Daphne. I really do. I do. I really want to like her. She's strong. When she gets cowed by Simon's temper, she bucks herself up and she's like, no, I'm not just going to like, I'm not going to cow underneath your temper. We're going to have to talk about this. She wants to talk about it. She goes to him and she's like, we need to talk about things. She tries so many times. She does. She tries so many times. But she does have these like slight manipulative tendencies I don't like. And I know where they come from. I know it comes from being naive and just trying to see the world through rose-colored glasses and being like, I love him and I can make his life better. But I just, those manipulative tendencies plus that whole scene, like, I just, she's a five. I can't get behind her as much as, and I remember liking Daphne so much. Yeah, me too. And then rereading it, like Simon rates so much higher than Daphne for me. Oh, for sure. I completely agree. And I remember one time you were like, a five is like I neither loved nor hated them, you know? And and yeah. I feel like they're for, for like 70% of the book, I loved Daphne. And then mm-hmm. for like 10% of the book, I hated Daphne. And then 20% of the book, I just didn't know what to think about Daphne, you know? Yeah. So it was like, so she was probably a seven, 7.5. And then she was like a two at one point. And now I'm just like confused. And so I feel like she just falls in the middle because I don't think she's irredeemable. I think that she's a good co- a character to have a conversation about, you know? Yes. But I, I don't, I can't, I can't rate her highly because I'm still mad at her for what she did. Correct. So, all right. But this book did have some great parts, some great quotes. Be- oh my God, it did. I was highlighting like a fiend. I had so many things. Yeah, it was very hard to choose which one to talk about. But Julia Quinn, we haven't spoken about her writing yet. Julia Quinn is a brilliant writer. I love her writing. Her dialogue, I think, is what gets me. Oh, for and sure. this is like, I couldn't remember what it was I loved about Julia Quinn, but her dialogue is just so good. Like, when they're being a family, it feels like a family talking mm-hmm. together. When they're having the intimate moments or you're, and if Simon's struggling, you feel it. Like, when Simon has his little stuttery moments, like, you ache for him and you feel that vulnerability with him. Like, she's so good with her dialogue. It's so good. That I just, I could, I was just eating it up. Absolutely. As was I. So... What have you chosen to spotlight for us today? Okay, so I had a few. I'm going to pick two (laughs) of that. It's very difficult. The first one I did, which I still believe in, is one from Violet Bridgerton. It's It's actually in her own head talking. And for me, when I first got into Violet Bridgerton, I was like, why don't I like Violet Bridgerton? I remember really liking Violet. I liked the mother. She was hilarious. She was great. I hate her right now. I hate her. (laughs) I hated her at the moment. And then she kind of like, there were these little moments and I was like, now I remember why I had those feelings of like for her. So here's the first one. None of her children seem to be on to any of her tricks. Just blather on about nothing in particular and she could be rid of any of them in a trice. (laughs) Yeah, she is a very managing mama and in some good ways and then in some not so good ways. But, you know, she had eight kids to raise on her own, just her and a horde of servants. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yes. And then... Another one is, so this was happening at the duel and Simon is like, how did you get here? And Daphne says, Colin took me. 
Bridgerton, he bellowed. Three chestnut heads swiveled in his direction. Simon stomped across the grass, murder in his eyes. I meant the idiot Bridgerton. Uh, that, I believe, Anthony said mildly, tilting his head towards Colin, would refer to you. <laughs> and then, uh, I, I had that one highlighted as well. <laughs> so I have a couple. So my two favorites I will get to, but there's just one line that I really liked that Julia Quinn did because I really dislike it when the hero call says my dear miss blah 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 you know Mm -hmm. and that happens a lot and sometimes they'll say it like the whole book and it's really annoying so (laughs) I I happen to notice it as we know I get real pedantic about these things Mm -hmm. um I I happen to notice it and so she said it twice and immediately I like pressed find on my kindle it was only twice in the whole book and I was like okay that's weird and the second time (laughs) Simon says my dear Miss Bridgerton, and Daphne interrupts and says, if you call me that again, I shall scream. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, Daphne, girl after my own I heart. thought that was hilarious too. Yeah. So then the next quote that I want to share is when Simon gets Daphne an engagement ring, He, it's an emerald and it's beautiful and she loves it. And he says, to match your eyes. And she's like, what are you talking about? I have brown eyes. And he's like, no, they're not completely brown. They've got a little rim of green around the edge. And so then the quote is, fancy that, she murmured. I have green eyes. And he says, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say, for today, she interrupted, I refuse to believe they are anything but green. I yeah. loved that line. I like, I highlighted it as well. <laughs> oh God, it's so sweet and so beautiful. I really love it. It is. And I love that she's like, cause she does, she runs to the and she's like, Oh, fancy that. Who knew I had green eyes? Yeah. And he's like, okay, well, that's going a little far. She's like, no, no, no. You said there was green. Now they're green. Yeah. <laughs> Today they are green. And so then the other thing I like is when they get to the inn as they're traveling to the castle and they have to stop at the inn and there's only one room, she notices that there's something amiss and he had asked her to wait by the door. And so she notices he's arguing with the innkeeper and so she she wanders over and this occurs. She made her way over to her husband's side. Is anything amiss? She inquired politely. Simon spared her a brief glance. I thought you were waiting by the door. I was. She smiled brightly. I moved. <laughs> I love I loved that one too. To me, that's like, prime I Daphne. Like Daphne is See, just like, but that's why I, I liked Daphne. Like it's, you know, I those know. were great. There's another time when she laughs in his face when she's trying to be intimidating and she's just like, I have four brothers. Like, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to wound your pride. You, if it had been anybody else, it would have worked. But on me, know. you know, and so it's, I just love that. That was right at the beginning. And I just thought it was hilarious. So hilarious. So uh. Next off, we've got our encounter counter, and there are four written scenes. One of them, which we uh, discussed at length, and it's uh, troubling. Uh, They also spend a week sequestered away, but there are four scenes. Now, other than our troubling consent scene, uh, which is not steamy in the least, how would you rate the other scenes steaminess-wise? Um, I would say they were like, I feel for me, I felt like it was, I, I, you know what? They were hot out of the oven. Yeah, I, I would agree. They were very steamy in the moments that they had together. And he was a very caring, good lover. I felt like for the most part, and Daphne was having fun exploring her newfound sexuality and sensuality. And so that was good until it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, I like to think hot out of the oven because it's hot to touch right when it first comes out. And then Uh you give it a few minutes and then it's just fine. I would agree. So 
Whoa, I don't even know where to start with like our recap. Uh, if it's a feminist, uh, I I think we got to say offender, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah. I mean, like she's a strong woman and... She takes charge. She takes things into her own hand. Yeah. But this book just has but some takes, troubling yeah. things that I don't think advance... Like the feminist cause, yeah, and I think like you can also take away kind of you can take away a lot of different things. I think depending on your own personal experiences, I definitely took away some things um, that I don't want to get into. Um, and yeah, I just I think that unfortunately it's it's an offender. Although Julia Quinn in her own even like social profiles says you know feminist, and I a hundred percent believe she is one. I think this book was written nineteen years ago. She's never commented on this, so I imagine she's got a lot of thoughts about it. But it's difficult to kind of uh, put those into words. I'm interested to see how Netflix approaches it and what storylines are changed. Yes, I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with this book now that we've reread it. So I'm very, very curious. So we're at the end here. What would you rate this book, Kelsey? I'm going to rate this book like a six. Because while there was the troubling scene in there, I did really like Simon. I medium liked Daphne. I really liked the interactions between Daphne and her siblings. I liked the setup because they're like, you met a lot of characters, but you still felt it centered around Daphne and Simon. And I loved the writing in it. So that's why for me, it's like a six because I still liked it, but there was so many troubling things towards the end of it that I really couldn't rate it higher than that. I actually just completely agree. You said all the words I wanted to say. I also (laughs) rated a six. I also think all those things. So the question is, would I recommend it? And so I I still would recommend this book, but I wouldn't recommend it like I used to. I would, would preface this book to anybody that there is an issue of consent and that it is not required reading to read the whole Bridgerton series, that the rest of them I think are much better. And if you don't want to read a book like that, then you don't have to. Agreed. And I I still think it's a great book. And I think if you want to read the Bridgertons, I think the Bridgertons is a fabulous series. And, you know, some of us are sticklers sticklers for reading the whole thing. So, but it would be something to just be like, there are some issues with it that I'm aware of. But if you can get past those, it's a good book. Yeah. So speaking of good books, what are we reading next time? We're going to read the Bridgertons number dos. Yes, we are. And that book is The Viscount Who Loved Me. And that is Anthony and Kate's book. And we are excited to read it. We're excited to hate Anthony less. Yeah. And we're going to get into some competitive lawn sports. So I look forward to that. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> this is great. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. I'm so excited. <laughs> but I forgot that origin in this book. I knew it takes place in the other books, but I forgot the origin in this book. Yes, The Mallet of Death. Yeah, The Mallet of Death death yes so it's very exciting we're looking forward to that and just heads up we're doing two bridgertons and then we're doing something a little bit different so just two we're just sprinkling the bridgertons in and in the interim go ahead and head on over to apple podcasts rate review subscribe that's how we get found and thank you for listening Thank you. Tell your friends. (laughs) And see you next week as we read The Viscount Who Loved Me by Julia Quinn.
to our opinions. I, I read your say. I read your suggestion, and I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna keep this in there, but I laughed out loud when I wrote it. <laughs> uh, you literally, I read it, and I literally went ha! I just barked. I was like, oh. <laughs> Pretty incapacitating. Yes. And is that a word? Incapacitating? I think so. Anyhow. It is right, now. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk a little bit more about their plan. Daphne insists that they bring Anthony into their plan. And every time you do that, I get I feel like you're saying stop talking. And oh, I'm, like, I'm sorry. I'm literally like <laughs> schwitzing. I this room is so hot. All I oh, want to no. do is turn on a fan or something, oh, but then no. we're gonna have fan noise. So like this is all for the podcast. I'm sorry. I should literally go get a like a hand fan, except we'd probably hear that too. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow. Um Anthony <laughs> does not like and sorry, my dog just came flying past the window. I was like, what was that? <laughs> um, in the epilogue, there's a little like side quote. And this is Simon. He was talking to Daphne because she's like, how do I look? And he's like, there was a certain history to this. While heavily pregnant with Amelia, she had asked him if she was radiant or if she looked like a waddling duck. He told her she looked like a radiant duck. That had not been the correct answer. <laughs> Oh, it's so good.